Well, everyone, today is a very, very special day for me. It, um, it marks the second best decision that I ever made in my life. Forty years ago today, this very day, was a Saturday. And uh, it was the day that I married Lynn. And I just want to, to say to her today how much I love her and how much of a, a wonderful partner she has been all these years. And we've raised together wonderful kids and now some grandkids. And uh, so, uh, would you join with me in uh, acknowledging that, uh, acknowledging my wife and how much I love her and, and how, uh, how great these years have been. Forty years, hard to believe. But here it is, upon us. Well, there are, there are certain uh, scriptures in the Bible, certain statements that are made in the scriptures that are, that are jaw-dropping, uh, what we call jaw-dropping, gobsmacking, mic-dropping, eye-popping, wow-emoji-pushing moments. And, and one of those is recorded in Mark chapter 10, verse 26, when the bewildered and befuddled disciples get woke about salvation. Uh, they drop a question concerning the destiny of mankind to Jesus. And the question that they state is, who then can be saved? Which is actually the wrong question. And Jesus uh, turns uh, the question around without actually asking the question. But he doesn't follow up with a 10-step program to answer how people can be saved he does direct them to the right question. And the right question is not, who then can be saved? The right question is, who then can save? And Jesus expresses to them that with man, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And today as we launch into this study in actually Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52, I want to, uh, up front, make certain that there's no misunderstanding about what we're talking about today. Uh, there's a temptation when we are preaching on narratives, preaching on stories, preaching on characters, to make the story about the character, when in fact, every story about every character in the Bible is really a story about Jesus. And so it's critically important for us not to miss that point, and I don't want you to miss that point. I don't want to give any impression today as we look at this um, amazing story of, uh, of Bartimaeus. I don't want to give any impression that, that, that he's someone special. I, I want to point him out as evidence of what salvation looks like, evidence of what one does when Jesus comes calling. And uh, so, uh, it, it's just so we don't have any confusion at all. Uh, the, the title, of course, of the sermon is The People Jesus Saves. And uh, I want you to know that what it really means is, is what people Jesus is saving act like. So I, I want to clarify that from the very beginning. And before we actually look at the text, I, I want to just take a few moments and make sure we all understand what salvation is from the Scriptures. And, and today we're going to look at the Jesus who saves and the people who benefit from his salvation. Like Bartimaeus, 
This is a sermon on applying the offer of salvation and what that looks like. By definition, salvation is the saving of human beings from eternal death and separation from God forever by Christ's death and resurrection. And there are a number of scripture texts that really highlight for us that this is absolutely a work of God. It's not a a work of ourselves. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made, he, God made him Jesus who knew no sin, look at, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Notice that? Titus 3.5, he saved us. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in right. Uh, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Notice John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved by God and your household. Philippians 3, 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from him on the basis of faith. So, beloved, I hope you notice, those of you who are tuning in today, I hope you notice that salvation, and we could go on and on and on with more texts. Salvation, first to last, is a gift of God. And, and today what we're looking at is what's the application of that gift act like? When we are surveying and studying characters, it is to point to the awesomeness of Christ our Savior and the awesomeness of his salvation and what are the responses to that salvation? And what does that salvation look like? So, so this, this morning, I absolutely want us to make sure that we're focusing on that idea and that idea alone. We're examining the faith God gives for salvation, not some sort of works or personal righteousness or deeds uh, by someone else. We're looking at a tactical response to the God who saves. With that in mind, let's pray and then let's look at the text. Father, we thank you so much for for your amazing salvation. And let us never, ever, Lord, take our eyes off of Jesus or or assume in any possible way that, that we bring anything to our salvation because we don't. We know that it is entirely of the grace of God, undeserved favor from our living God, our Savior, Christ, who died for us. And so we just come, Lord, to the text this morning uh, with an understanding that salvation is a gift of God to us. And and Lord, even as I I pray that right now, I pray that for those who are listening this morning, that that, uh, if there's someone here who does not know Christ, that today, hearing of this amazing salvation, that today a heart might turn to Christ. And Lord, I pray as well for our our own... uh, uh, fellow believers who are, who are joining with us online this morning. Lord, may this just um, fire up our hearts. But there are, there are important and critical evidences of true faith and discipleship that are found in this text. Lord, and I pray that we might examine our own lives and be certain that we are 
demonstrating that kind of evidence and tactical evidence that faith truly is in us through Christ Jesus. I pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles or whatever device you have there, this electronic device, and let's look at Mark chapter 10. And I want to look at uh, several verses here from verse 46 to verse 52. Verse 46 to 52. Um, It says here, Then they came to Jericho. And of course, we're talking about the entourage of disciples and those who were traveling with Jesus. And as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of God. A little background information here. They've arrived at Jericho. Now, Jericho was the diversion point for pilgrims who were coming from Galilee and wanted to avoid Samaria. And so they would go around the, into the territory of Perea on the other side of the the uh, Jordan, and they would uh, arrive at Jericho. Jericho was about 15 miles uh, from Jerusalem. It was a staging point for travelers who would make the journey, which was in many ways a perilous journey. Uh, Thieves and robbers and and whatnot would be hiding in the the wilderness as they traveled from Jericho to um, Jerusalem. So most people wanted to travel in an entourage, and it was no different in this case. It was Passover time. We know that. In fact, This entourage leads right into the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the uh, final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And and, uh, because it was Passover time, uh, the crowd was that much larger uh, heading from Jericho to Jerusalem. It was a road well-traveled, but in this case, it was traveled by, and the mark highlights, a very large crowd. Because it was required uh, by by the law that uh, Jews, male Jews, 12 years of age and older were required if they were within striking distance, were in, within travel distance of Jerusalem to attend Passover. And so um, the, the crowd has gathered. It's a large crowd and they're, they're moving toward. But it was also um, typical that women and others would gather and some uh, men who were not going to make the journey would gather along the parade route and they would be cheering and cheering the pilgrims who would be moving to, to, uh, on to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So it was kind of a, vib- a festival, a festive occasion and, and lots of enthusiasm and lots of excitement because there was great anticipation. Passover time was, was always thought of as the time that maybe Messiah will come. The irony, of course, oozes from every story that we read in the text. 
And, and um, another fact that we know is that uh, there was approximately about 20,000 priests who served in Jerusalem, and there was 20,000 or so Levites. They were in 26 different divisions. They were split up, and they didn't all live in Jerusalem. They couldn't all live in Jerusalem, so they were scattered about. And they, they operated and served on a rotational basis. But when it came time for Passover, all hands were on deck. There was a lot of sacrificing going on, uh, as we talked about before. Perhaps a quarter of a million lambs were slaughtered at Passover time, and that required a lot of priests and a lot of Levites. And so the entourage was also filled with priests and Levites and Jesus all kinds of religious leaders who were not exactly fans of Christ. And so you have this large gathering, lots of opposition to Jesus packed in this crowd, and they just happen to be traveling together, lacking any sense of who he really was or rejecting anything that was ever said about him. And then there's this blind beggar who's on the side, unable, obviously, to make the journey. He's begging, and um, uh, here you have priests with... Uh, perfect eyesight, Levites with perfect eyesight, blind to who Jesus was, but you have this beggar who's, who's uh, calling out, or he's, and, and, and he asks the question, evidently from the text, asked who's passing by, because there was a stir, obviously, and someone said, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, that Jesus. I, I want to share with you uh, four um, evidences of an individual who is being called by Christ to salvation, as demonstrated by this particular individual, Bartimaeus. And the first is this, that those Jesus is saving actually reach out to Jesus and not some generic religious experience. Notice what he's calling He's calling out Jesus, defining the name, Jesus, son of David, further explaining who he's talking about. Have mercy on me. Expressing from his heart uh, uh, some sort of recognition that this Jesus of Nazareth was special and had power and authority to do what he was asking him to do. Many of our discipleship uh, mis mishaps uh, are because of selective spiritual blindness. And certainly it was the case uh, with uh, the people uh, surrounding Jesus in his day. People who cannot see, people who will not see, uh, people who refuse to see things the way God has placed them. You have all kinds of examples here. So when we come upon this story of a blind man calling out to Jesus, it kind of begs the question of our own lives, how blind are we? How blind are, are we as an audience to Jesus and who he is? How, how blind are you in the online audience this morning? We've got all kinds of jealous religious compromisers who are here telling this man to, to shush, seeking to quiet him down. But he, in fact, is preaching truth. He's identifying Jesus, son of David, as Messiah. He, he dared to believe that, in fact, Jesus had the authority to exercise mercy in his favor. This is the evidence of someone who actually has been granted 
a spiritual eyesight by God already with some sensitivity and, and, and some sort of faith in Christ. He, he's, he's demonstrating what the uh, apostles wrote in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 when they said, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He dared to believe that Jesus could exercise mercy in his favor. What, what is this all about? It's a call of repentance. Literally a call of repentance. The, the definition of mercy is, is compassion and forgiveness towards someone you have the power to punish. Be merciful to me. That, that, that's what we would use if, if someone, if we were to go and throw ourselves at the mercy of the court, someone who has the authority and power to, to uh, punish us. He comes before Jesus and, and, and calls out to him, giving him the office and authority of, of the one who can actually forgive and offer compassion. It's a call of repentance, undeserved goodness, specifically addressed to the one he was calling Messiah. There are certain prayers we know that God does not answer. From James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. One, of course, is the prayer where we ask the Lord for something that we're just going to squander on our pleasures. But the second prayer that, that our Lord does not answer is the prayer that we don't say. And this man was calling out, calling out to the living God. And Jesus hears through the noise, a genuine call for mercy. I hope you note that. Those Jesus saves actually reach out to Jesus and not some generic religious experience. It is Jesus alone who saves. And the blind beggar knew it. I notice secondly here that those Jesus is saving persist in spite of many obstacles and hindrances. If you notice in the text that says in verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he kept shouting all the more. All kinds of uh, people in this crowd, perhaps some were trying to uh, insulate Jesus from uh, the crowd, but perhaps there were others, and I suspect so, Priests and Levites, as I said, were in this entourage who, who were telling him to quiet down because they didn't like how he was addressing Jesus. They didn't like the fact that he was confirming, conferring upon Jesus uh, his rightful identity as Messiah, son of David. There's a lot of noise that day. There's co continually a lot of noise around uh, today in our world competing for our attention, to, to steal us away from thinking about the things of God, considering our eternal destiny. Some of the noise we willingly receive. Either there were those who didn't value the lost in that particular crowd or those who didn't value the Lord of the lost. Either way, there was lots of noise uh, hindering and rebuking, getting in the way. And the, the, Lord issues, the Lord Jesus issues very clear rebukes with respect to this kind of thing, being a, a hindrances and obstacles. 
In, in chapter 9, verse 42, he says, make sure you aren't an obstacle to the gospel. Make sure you aren't a hindrance to the things of God. Very serious matter. And then don't let anything be an obstacle or hindrance to you. Jesus has stated in Luke's gospel, recorded in Luke's gospel, Luke 14, 26 to 27, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is a common theme in the scriptures with respect to those who find their way to salvation, those who, who Jesus is saving. It's persistence. It's a common theme. In, in Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12, the paralytic, they literally had to take the roof off a building to, to get rid of the hindrance and the obstacle to getting their friend to Jesus. In, in Luke 5, 35, there's Jairus' daughter and all of who, who, had, who had died and, and the people around uh, becoming obstacles and hindrances to Jairus saying, don't bother the teacher, don't bother the rabbi, your, your daughter's already dead, it's too late, getting in the way. But he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be dissuaded. There's the Gentile woman in Mark chapter 7, 24, who came to Jesus, even though Jesus had stated he had, his mission was to come to the lost house of Israel. But this Gentile woman nevertheless persisted because her daughter, her little daughter was possessed by a demon, and she urged and begged Jesus that he might save her child, and Jesus responded. There's, of course, the the possessed boy and the persistent father in Mark chapter 9, verse 14, and the disciples who became hindrances and obstacles to the, to the um, uh, exorcism of the, of the uh, uh, demon from the, the boy. Now, Jesus was the one who, who was able to, to rescue him. And then, of course, in Mark 1, verse 40 and following, there's those who are under social distancing, lepers, who were restricted and, and hindered and, under, and, and, and all kinds of obstacles to them getting to Jesus. But nevertheless, they persist, pers- the, the leper persisted and, and Jesus responded. And then, of course, there's the woman with the issue of blood who was also in a, in a, a quarantine and, and a certain social distance restriction. But she would not be dissuaded in Mark chapter 5, 25. And so there's this consistent pattern throughout the, the New Testament, the gospel as recorded in Mark of persistence as evidence of those who's, who Christ is drawing to himself. To those who are bottomed out, to, to those who cry out to Jesus. There's those who are hindered by, by the uncaring and those who finally hear his call and those who actually want to see and, and those who... who uh, want to be healed and, and then leave all and follow Christ. There's this pattern that, that moves, moves throughout the text. So what about you? What's, what's the obstacle? What's the hindrance in the way of you following Christ as Savior? What's the hindrance to you, a child of God, who already know Christ? What's the obstacle in the way of your life right now? Giving yourself fully to the Lord. To those of you who maybe in your past who, who don't know Christ and you're listening today and, and the reason you don't know him as far as you're concerned is you were hurt in the past or you were hindered in the past. Maybe, maybe by a, a Christian who treated you poorly or a church that you popped into and it, and it didn't work out very well for you. 
How little does it take for you to give up on the most important decision of your life, your eternal destiny? How, how little of a hindrance does it take for you just to mail it in and, and just go on with life and, and ignore Christ and ignore so great a salvation? Are, are you going to let some obstacle, some hindrance from some poor choice of another person, some awkward moment in a church somewhere, are you going to let that stand in the way of your eternal destiny? Those who are being called to Christ by faith persist and overcome hindrances and obstacles. I think of some of you who, who serve here with us know Christ. How much work do others constantly have to do to entice you to follow hard after Christ? There's so many other obstacles, so many other hindrances in your life. What do people have to do? How, how, how um, creative do people have to be to catch your attention so you'll be interested in Jesus? That concerns me. The people who evidence faith, true faith, saving faith in Christ, persist. No matter what the obstacles or hindrances, they persist until they get to Jesus, until they're heard by Jesus. Salvation's a lifestyle. It's, it's not just a moment. A takeaway here for us, the people Jesus reaches with salvation, believe he is too valuable to risk missing out on. That brings me to my third observation here in the text. Those Jesus is saving recognize the urgency of salvation. Notice some, it says in the text that uh, Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. It says in verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet. He sprung to his feet and, and came to Jesus. Is there a, an urgency in your life concerning your eternal destiny? Those of you out there in online land today, surely the backdrop of of this current moment we're in has captured and captivated somehow your emotions. A recognition that um, today you're here, tomorrow you might be gone. Today you might hear the message, tomorrow you might not be able to hear it. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, there's this statement of invitation. The greatness of salvation, the greatness of God. The Spirit and the bride say, come. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God and, and the church say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Come to Jesus. He's stopping. He's noticing you. He's calling you. He's inviting you to cheer up. I hope we understand that God doesn't even owe us one opportunity to hear the good news of salvation. He doesn't owe us even one opportunity. It's of the grace of God that this morning you tuned in and listened to this message. 
It's his undeserved favor towards you that he would bring you to an audience to hear that Jesus cares about you, that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus wants to offer you his salvation, that Jesus wants to offer you eternal life. This is an incredible grace of God moment. You have now. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. None of us do. And there's an urgency to those who understand the, the weight and the value of Jesus Christ and the, the good news of salvation to have sins forgiven and a relationship restored with God and an and eternal destiny with God forever. There's an urgency to that message. How do I get in on this? Are you in a take it or leave it mode? Taking it for granted? Or, or perhaps you're, you've come to the place where you think, well, I need to clean up some things in my life first. Or, or there's some other things that I need to take care of. Or, or maybe there's some things that I'd like to do before I kind of settle on my final estate and my inheritance in eternal life. <laughs> Friend, we have today. We have this moment. Jesus was on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. In his earthly mission, he was never going to pass that way again. He was collecting his final earthly harvest that day. And the blind beggar, he understood the urgency. He understood the gravity of the moment. He understood the incredible value of the one who was passing by. His moment was there. I don't know what history is going to record for us. I don't know what the future holds in the, in the short run. I do know that this world is coming to an end one day. I do know that judgment comes. I do know that, that God will separate those who are his from those who are not his for all eternity. I do know all of that. I don't know what this COVID-19 moment means in terms of uh, where it fits in the historic timeline of humanity, but it's possible that God right now is, is collecting his final harvest before the end of time. It's possible. I do know for certain that right now the offer is available of salvation. Tomorrow it may be too late. And so Jesus here calls out. He stops. And the crowd literally says, wake up. Get on your feet. He's calling you. There's no sweeter sound in, in all of life, in all of the world, than, than he's calling you. Friend, is Jesus calling you this morning? going to slough it off, going to slouch back on your couch, going to scroll through um, some comments on Facebook? Well, he didn't. It says in the text that he threw off his cloak. By the way, that was all he had to his name. His cloak was his livelihood. His, his cloak was what he used to beg for alms, and, and, and it, it, was, it was how he was employed it was what kept him warm at night. But he was not 
wanting any hindrance or any obstacle to weigh him down. And he threw it, threw it to the side and leapt to his feet and ran to Jesus. <laughs> How much are some of us trying to continue to drag along with us and hope that we can keep up with Jesus too? Not him. When you understand the urgency and the value of Christ, you, you offload anything that would get in the way. Salvation is at stake. It's here. Now. And finally, I, I notice in the text that Jesus asks him a question. What do you want me to do for you? The fourth um, characteristic that I, I think I see here, or observation of those Jesus is saving is this. Those Jesus is saving follow Jesus. You see, being part of the large crowd around Jesus really didn't mean much. We know for certain that there were those in the crowd who were trying to, to hush this man who was interested in Christ, interested in Savior, interested in the Messiah, interested in salvation. Many were hindering him from salvation. So just being in the, the crowd of Jesus doesn't mean you're actually saved. In uh, Matthew 7, 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And it is the will of the Father that none should perish, but that all should come to, to salvation. There were those who were seeking to hinder the man coming to salvation, certainly not doing the will of the Father. Son of David responds to the son of Timaeus. What do you want me to do? for you. By the way, this question was asked a little bit earlier to the disciples. So I know he's putting them back in the classroom, taking another run at this question and showing them how the question really should be answered. They said, hey, we want to sit in your right hand and your left hand. We want to spend um, your response to our prayer on our pleasures. <laughs> Jesus doesn't answer that prayer. We already talked about that. You know, friend, what I notice about Jesus is he picks out the lasts in this world and the losers in this world, in the eyes of the world, so that he can award them a first place finish. What do you want me to do for you? Isn't it obvious? He's a beggar. Why are you asking this question? The answer is, the answer is quite obvious. He needs money. He's going to ask you for money. He wants money. Listen, friend, that's the question that Jesus is asking of you today. What do you want me to do for you? And for too many of us, we view Jesus, we view Almighty God as a dispensing machine. I want, I want Jesus because I want good health. I want Jesus because I want wealth. I want Jesus because I want a nice life. I want Jesus because I want a, a community of people. I want Jesus because I, I'd like to belong to a church, have some friends. But he looks at the beggar and he says, what do you want me to do for you? 
The beggar clearly understood that this one who was asking him the question was able to give him more than he could ever ask or imagine. He looked at him through spiritual eyesight. He had no physical eyesight. But he was spiritually full-sighted. He knew exactly who Jesus was and what Jesus could do. And he says to him, I want to see. The contrast is evident. Uh, Jesus doesn't play games with subtle things with us. The blind man had perfect 20-20 faith sight. And those religious leaders in the throng marching with him to Jerusalem were really the ones who were blind. So, he says to him, go. <laughs> Your faith has healed you. What did Jesus mean by saying that? Was it because he believed that he could see that he would be able to see? No, that's, that's faith in faith. That's faith in himself. The faith that Jesus is talking about here, he's demonstrated all the way along. He's demonstrated that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He's demonstrated that he believed that persistence mattered. He, he demonstrated that he believed that, that urgency, the urgency and the value of Christ was evident. He, he's, he's demonstrated to us that God has already placed in his life faith. And the object of his faith is in Jesus. Jesus. I'm not going to ask you for money. That's too little. I'm not going to ask you for health. I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you for, for uh, wealth. I'm not going to ask you for a nice life. I'm going to ask you to see. I'm going to ask you for a miracle. And the reason I'm going to ask you for that is becomes obvious. Jesus says to him, "Go. Your faith has healed you." Immediately he received his sight. And he didn't run the other direction. He actually followed Jesus along the road. The, the reason that his prayer was answered by Christ is because this man was not using his sight for his own pleasures or to gain some advantage to himself, but rather to follow Christ. This was a salvation moment. This was a repentance moment. This was Jesus, have mercy on me. Grant me my sight that I might follow hard after you, that I might pick up my cross and, 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 and deny myself and daily follow Christ. Not to squander my life on every new distraction, but to focus my life on Christ. That's what the saved do. To finally experience his purpose. I um, couldn't help as I studied this text to think about the song Amazing Grace. How great the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This sea is more, 
more than just physical eyes, being able to gaze into the beautiful face of Jesus. These are eyes that peered into the very reality of who Christ is, of incalculable value. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Christian, perhaps you have cataracts on your eyes. I don't mean your physical eyes, on the spiritual eyes of your heart. And there are a lot of distractions, a lot of hindrances, a lot of obstacles. You're not persisting in following after Christ. You're allowing everything to get in the way. You have no sense of urgency about the gospel, about the lost, about concerns of your own heart, where your heart's at with Christ. Can I urge you today? This message is for you. You're hearing it today. There's no guarantee you're going to hear this message tomorrow. This is the moment. This is the opportunity. And for you who don't know Jesus and have just checked us out today, what do you want Jesus to do for you? There isn't anything that he can't do for you. But the most important thing is he will forgive you of your sins and save you and bring you into his family. There's two prayers that God won't answer. The prayers we ask that we might spend the things he gives us on our pleasures for ourselves and the ones we never say. Jesus is inviting you to say something today. What do you want me to do for you? He's calling you. Now cast aside anything that's in the way. Spring to your feet. Cheer up and follow after Christ. Our Father, I pray this morning with this amazing offer of salvation from Jesus. I pray, O oh God, for those listening. I pray for myself. I pray, Lord, that we might not miss this moment. Our Savior, the one who loved us and the one who has died for us, is passing this way this morning. He, he might not pass this way again. This might be the final gathering of the final harvest. There's an urgency. And he's, he's, he's asking us, what do you want me to do for you? What, what a tremendous offer. He stopped. He's calling us. Lord, I pray that we might offer ourselves to him all over again today, afresh. That is a re-salvation. Salvation is a gift of eternal life given once and forever. But that we might respond with a, a renewed passion to follow Christ because of what he's done for us. And Lord, I just pray for, for one or another who may be there and today is the first time they've ever heard Jesus calling them. Ever, this is the first time they've ever heard an invitation that Jesus has stopped, is noticing, 
is calling them and asking them, what do you want me to do for you? Oh Lord, I pray that people everywhere would call out, Lord, save me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Forgive me of my sins. Bring me into your family. Give me eternal life, I pray. And I'll follow you with all I have for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, friends, if you prayed that prayer this morning, we would love to hear from you. You're going to have some directions that are going to come up on the screen on how you can call in, how you can um, connect with us in a virtual prayer room. One of our pastors would love to pray with you, um, either online or you can phone in and one of us will call you back today and we'll talk to you and we'll show you and, and, and we'll show you from God's word how you can be certain and sure that you know the Lord. Uh, if some of our brothers or sisters need prayer, prayer uh, this morning, please call us. Uh, we'd love to pray with you. Um, you'll, the information is there. And then finally, um, just a reminder that God has done so much for you. Christ has saved you. He loves you. And this is our opportunity to demonstrate our great love for the Lord by our support of the mission of Christ. So we would encourage you as well to continue to, um, to worship the Lord by supporting the ministry of Calvary Baptist Church and our partners around the world. And uh, we thank you for, for doing that. Hey, we love you so much. We're so glad you tuned in today. Uh, may the Lord richly, richly bless you this week. Uh, we thank him for his great, great salvation. What an awesome thing. Uh, have a great week. God bless.